Welcome back to Coffee and Cortisol, your PA podcast. I'm David. This is Rosie. And today we're joined by Sang, one of our classmates. Say hey, Sang. Hi. And we are talking about her journey, which is um, very unique and uh, probably one of the most incredible things I've heard. So sit tight. It's going to be a really good podcast and uh, can't wait to hear the rest of it. So uh, for everyone listening and and, uh, for those of you who have seen our logo, um, we have brought in the designer of our logo, Sang, who uh, built it mostly from scratch. I think we we made some clip arts that we sent to you, which were a disaster, Um, but you took it from uh, some crappy high school design to something that looked, I mean, I love it. It was like way left. Uh, We sent her things that were way left and she took it way right. Yeah, in the best possible way. Like, yeah. just made it so, so good and so fresh. And so, thank you for doing that. Thank you. No problem. I think that, like, as a, I'm not an artist, but if I were to be an artist, I would think about the concepts of, like, what do the, um, like, what do you two actually really want, right? And convey. Yeah. So, I think that's the whole point of the logo. It's like, what do we want to convey and the message you want to get out? Yeah, it was it was a fun experience because we were able to say like, hey, we like this. We like the the steam coming this way or we like these colors. And um, really, it was easy to like get you to um, or maybe not get you, but like you were able to like see what we saw like really easily. Yeah. I think it's because we're all in PE school. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, thank you. (laughs) No problem. Yeah. Thanks again. That's uh, it's so cool. So um, but yeah, let's uh, let's dive into kind of what we're here to talk about. So. yeah, I, I, let's dive in. Let's start from the beginning, kind of, and we'll, and we'll eventually get to how you got to PA school. But um, you know, with with a lot of these these folks that we're bringing on, we want to share that everyone's journey is just a little bit different, and um, some are um, vastly more different, I would say. And so I think that's why I want to share that, like, no matter kind of what happens really in your life, like, there's still a path to this profession. So, um, yeah, let's start with from the beginning, and and what do you got? Okay, so that's the, the one unique part about being um, in this cohort is that we all come from different backgrounds and we're very, very unique in that way. Um, my story, you know, I think it's just one of the many stories um, of anybody in, in peace or anybody in medicine. I was born in Laos. Um, I lived in Laos for about three years and then my family resettled in the refugee camps in Thailand for about three years before coming to the U.S. Um, and there's, you know, a whole long history of why we um, resettle in the Thailand refugee camps. And that's usually tie in um, with the war in Vietnam. So so I know my, for myself, before we read the book, um, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, which um, I, for those of you who don't know, is a, a really good book that describes um, kind of, I would say, um, cultural barriers to uh, proper health care for certain groups. Um, but I didn't know much about Vietnam and the U.S., relations with um, the Hmong people. So could you kind of just a brief, I know that's a very long history, but just a brief uh, overview of what happened that led to uh, the Hmong people needing to be refugees? Right. Uh, So actually, I didn't mention this, but I'm Hmong. um, And a lot of people don't know my people or when I say I'm Hmong, they're like, what's that? They tend to say, are you Mongolian? Which Mm. is not even close at all. (laughs) And so uh, the like brief history of my people is that we're uh, mountain people. So we live in a mountain, so that therefore we're really aware of the terrains, right? Um, and so during the Vietnam War, uh, U- U.S. and the Soviet Union, they had entered into a um, an agreement during the Geneva Accord that they were going to all pull out their military. Uh, but something that happened behind the scene is that the U.S. kind of didn't really do that. They used um, 
other people to fight their war. As so it was like a proxy thing. war. Yeah. Um, and my people were part of that. So we were fighting their war, um, the U.S.'s war. Um, and so we were rescue like soldiers who would be flying and bombing um, Laos and the communist like uh, supply route. We were rescued. Uh, well, not we, but the, so the Hmong soldiers were rescued down soldiers um, and they were waged guerrilla warfare during, uh, along the supply route. And yeah, we I were involved. Sorry, and no we were involved in that. And so, after the Vietnam War, when communism took over, um, my people were persecuted because mm -hmm. we were seen as traitors. Right. And that's how we all, you know, um, escaped Laos because we were being persecuted. Well, that's I think probably one of the most tragic things about the Vietnam War is just our, the promises we made to the Hmong people as the U.S. speaking for the U.S. here, and then we didn't follow through with that. Right, and that's an important piece because. Um, there had to be some sort of exchange, right? Yeah. So in exchange for us being involved in the war and fighting America's war, we were promised to have a piece of land to call us to call it our own country because um, for like Hmong people, we actually never had a country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were just like farmers and um, we were agrarian people. So we travel around the world, like different areas a lot. Right. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember. I don't know in the book exactly specifics, but it's something like they were paying the Hmong people too. Like the the war the fighters, I guess the soldiers, um, they were paying them like one fortieth of what a U.S. soldier would make in a week, and just you know, the, just things like that. That um, and I I think things would have changed if they would have won the war. Right. Um, but they lost the war, and then it's kind of like, well, sorry, we can't do anything for you. And then and the only thing that we could do is like bring your people over to keep you safe. So that's how a lot of Hmong people um, immigrated to the U.S. Is and a lot of the the Hmong families and um, Hmong individuals who came to the U.S. early, like right after the Vietnam War, like in the '80s, were um, like military uh, officers. They were like the high-ranking soldiers. Mm -hmm. But my my own family, we were not directly involved in that. Like my dad never fought in the war, so we came much later. So we came in the later wave of Hmong ref refugees in 1992. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So does your family like when or or? Um, you have a larger clan as well. Um, so did did they feel resentment for the U.S.? I mean, it kind of it's kind of like going back to the hand that that bit you. I don't know if that, that's probably not yeah. the correct phrase, but it's kind of like why are you coming back to the U.S. when the U.S. was really the ones who put you in this position in the first place? Right. Um, I never really spoke to my parents about their own sen sentiment or like feelings about what happened, but I do know that. Being in the U.S. and understanding that the U.S. provide more opportunities, um, my parents are re really grateful to be here in the U.S. Okay. So overall, I think that they feel a sense of um, sense of gratefulness instead of like resentment. Overall, yeah, it's it's a complicated issue. Yeah, because if we were to live in Laos, I think the only opportunity that I would have had is just being a farmer, right? Basically, or like being married to someone who's a farmer. Mm -hmm. Or like going into the university and becoming a teacher, but then even that, like in third world country or developing country, like there's not a lot of opportunities or jobs. You could, you might just be a teacher, you might just be a nurse, but even being like a medical professional is really hard, yeah. especially if you're like from the mountains, you don't have money, you can't really afford to go to the university. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's different differences in formal education as well. Um, so, okay. So you came to the U.S. and... Um, Oh, no, sorry. You left Laos. Your family left Laos and were in Thailand uh, as refugees, yes. correct? How long were you in Thailand for? Um, I believe I was in there for like three years okay. before coming to the U.S. And you, so you were three years old at that time? Yeah. When we first got there, I was three. And then okay. when we left, I was six. So what uh, do you have any like memories about living in a refugee camp? Because no, I think most of the people listening here today have no experience with that. 
I do remember living in uh, a crowded space with my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents. Okay. So we definitely just share like one big square. Um, yeah. And I do remember fetching water with my mom at the water wheel. Okay. And also like there was this big area, like a marketplace, like um, there's all all these vendors around. And I remember walking in that area. And then when the nat- like the Thai national song came on, we would like have to stand still and kind of like pledge of allegiance. Like okay. before I Pledge of Allegiance. I remember that. Wow. Okay. The the Thailand Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. Okay. Um, would you say overall, I mean, granted you were three to six years old, but like, wasn't it a positive experience or would you, or a negative? Overall in the Thailand versus you can? Yeah. You know, I was a kid. So I think as a kid, you're kind of naive, right? right so you exactly. don't really understand the negative impact or um, the difficulties of living in the camps. Mm-hmm. So for me, I remember at least like the the little blurry memories that I had. I remember having fun. I remember playing with kids. So, yeah. 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 There's probably tons of kids around and yeah. like it's. I was just going to ask too, did you start school in Thailand or no. not till you got to the States? Yes. I never had any formal education. There's like no such thing as preschool or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So um, anything else about the refugee camp you want to touch on before we move on? Um... I mean, I think that like my parents' perspective, it would be really different. Yeah. Um, you know, they would talk about like um, not having enough food because the food is ration. Uh, having to really like, it was interesting because we are we're transitioning from like uh, agrarian civilization or culture into more of like trying to trying to like use money now. And I remember uh, like some of the women were so like uh, cloth to sell for money and exchange for money. But like that concept never really happened in Laos and the mountains. Cause sure. like we didn't use money, you know, we just farm and that's how we got our food. Right. food. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of like where we were like kind of adopting the capitalistic mindset before even coming to the U S. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It almost, we almost kind of need your parents in here to really get the I full, know, right? full look at it. Uh, but that's that's kind of maybe another podcast for another yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, six years old, you uh, come to the U.S. as um, refugees, and so what um, do you what do you remember from that? I remember not speaking English at all. Okay, like I went into kindergarten not speaking a word of English. Wow, that must um, have been tough. Yeah, really tough. And I remember vividly that there was this one boy who would hit. He was just, I think he was having behavior issue. I don't really know. But he was just going around like hitting people, right? Hitting my classmates. But when he hit me, I could I couldn't speak English. So I never like was able to communicate to my teacher what was happening. So I used body language. I basically say I basically pointed to him and said that he knocked me on my head with my oh, hand wow. for like my hand gesture. Sure. Yeah. And was the teacher able to understand that? Yes. Wow. So I think that proves that like, you know human can understand each other beyond verbal language yeah yeah and also like that was a moment where i knew that i was different um and that perhaps like i will continue to have struggles and barriers in life that are going to be very different yeah yeah absolutely yeah that uh i mean you know not being able to speak english like beyond just the obvious barrier of of it like i think people tend to hold it against you um you know, like, well, if you're coming here, you should be able to speak English. But, like, I, I don't know at what point you would have learned English, right. uh, which is kind of a ridiculous assumption. But, um, yeah, that's that's really interesting perspective. Were your parents fluent? No. Or no, nobody? No. Nobody was. So, well, I guess, like, how long did it take you to become fluent? And then, like, are your parents fluent now? My dad has his, like, GED, which is equivalent to a high school diploma. So my dad can speak English, like, I wouldn't say, like, fluently, but he can communicate in English. Um 
he can hold like conversational English, but he's not fluent. My mom doesn't speak English. Okay. Uh, for myself, I was put in um, ESL program, which is like English as a second language program yeah. until I was in the fifth grade. Okay. Yeah. So I would say that my ability to command the English language language wasn't even until later. You know, like although I tested out of ESL, like I wasn't really comfortable speaking English until maybe like close to ending high school. Okay, so we're yeah. talking 13 years that it took for you to, to really catch up. Yeah, because I actually spoke Hmong at home only. Yeah. yeah like I don't speak mm -hmm. English at home. Even now, like I still speak Hmong at home, uh, but I definitely have lost the ability to speak better in Hmong. So it, it's been difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of feel like I'm in that zone of like speaking English and speaking Hmong and not really like speaking any of them well. Yeah. Um, but that's like something that I think a lot of first generation or like immigrant students struggle with. It's like, do we like one foot is in the other side of the world and that the other foot is like in this other side of the world. So we're kind of like on the fence all the time. Do you feel like um, you're kind of losing your culture a little bit by by becoming more Western or American? Definitely. Yeah. Like. I don't really understand and I don't really can't even explain the traditions that we practice. Yeah. Because my own family, weren't, we weren't really traditional. Like I wasn't really traditional growing up. Um, and I don't under, I don't know why, but I think perhaps my dad and my mom understood that for us to be successful is like, we kind of have to be more integrated into like the educational system and like not bombard us with both the tradition and the American culture part of it. But I actually don't know their real reason. That's just what I assume. Okay, interesting. So bad. <laughs> so, um, man, thirteen years though. I, I just like that's just baffling to me to think about like how long that took to really like master the the English language. Like it's when it's tough because it's not it's not like you're going from like Spanish or yeah. um, you know like French or any of the European I guess languages that like use the same letters and. And whatnot, like to, to go from a completely right. completely independent different yeah. language, which to... is interesting because like my own people, we actually don't have a language system that was developed. So the language system that we use now is because there was this missionary that came, I believe, into the refugee camps and developed the language system for us. But, but you use but we we don't have a written language. You use the Latin alphabet, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, and was developed is... by the missionary yeah. that came into the camps. Yeah, that's. Yeah. That's um, so it was just completely verbal before that missionary. Yeah. So um, like a lot of the tradition and history, all of that is passed down verbally. So we're like an oral culture. Like we have an yeah. oral like culture in within our community. OK. Wow. That's uh, that's I mean, that's that's such a cool thing, like mm -hmm. because and, I, you know, you have to be such good storytellers. I feel uh, like I'm not. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I wish I was. Like these stories are fascinating. I mean, I'm sure though, you know, if that's all you hear for years and years on end, like you can eventually recite them and it's not, you know. Yeah. So, um, okay, well, let's move on to um, college, right? So so you, you master the English language by the time you're a senior and then it's off to college. Even Maybe. though I say master, I, I wouldn't even like say it was like truly mastering. Um, I would say that I was able to like, communicate in a way where I can get along with people and build relationships and uh, carry those relationships for. Um, but even that, I think there was like a kind of like a unique twist here because like, even if you can speak English, like you still don't feel like you're part of the larger society because sure. like, you're not really comfortable with the culture, you know, like the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I was only able to kind of feel more comfortable after college. Um, but yeah, so I went to Berkeley. I went to okay. Cal um, as my, for my undergrad. 
And a lot of um, the peers that I was surrounded by, they all wanted to be doctors, engineers, and lawyers, but I had no clue what I wanted to do. Sure. Um, I took all these like pre well, not like introduction classes to um, business, to I took like an intro to biology and all that. And like, I just didn't really like any of those classes. But then one day I sat into an introduction to social cultural anthropology and I really loved it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. So this is going to be my major. So I major in anthropology. And I think that because it's anthropology, I do find it really hard uh, to really hard as a PA student because like being an anthro major, we did a lot of reading and a lot of writing, not a lot of multiple choice exams. And so coming to PA school and having to just like like 95% or 90, even 99% take exam um, based on multiple choice, I have a really difficult time doing that. I think a lot of people struggle with that. And I don't know, I, I feel like with a lot of things, people look at what they don't have and then they compare it to what other people have. And they're like, well, if... if if I would have had a science major right. as my background, I would have been so much better off. I don't think that's necessarily the case. But also, you know what I think my barrier is, though? That, like, I still have to process it through, like, multiple modality to even understand the question. Because, like, in my head, I still sometimes think about things in, in like, mom, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So there's, like, different channel that I have to really process the information. Absolutely. And then, like, even with speaking, communicate through different channels first before it comes out in English. Yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 interesting because like that you're right. That isn't a barrier um, that I think most of us have to face. Uh, but yeah, so so I think just you know, for especially the people out there listening, like keep in mind that like even even if you have a, a non traditional major or or path here, like you're okay, you'll make it. Uh, it's just um, everyone has different challenges at different times. Right. So. But um, so what were you hoping to do with that anthropology degree? Like, did you have plans on doing research, going to grad school? What were you thinking? Honestly, I have no idea. Okay. And I, I just heard, I don't remember like how I heard of this or I remember somebody telling me that I should enjoy college. And I was like, well, if I do science or I do math, it's going to be horrible. I'm going to spend hours mm-hmm. studying. I'm not going to enjoy college. Sure. And so I decided that I was going to do anthro and I was going to uh, enjoy my college experience. And yeah. I really did. And I really did. Okay, great. Great. That's uh I think that's really what undergrad should be. Like you shouldn't have your life sucked out of you just to, um, I don't know. Like, I mean, there's so many things that undergrad benefits you with and whether it's just like, I mean, it's like your social kind of awakening and like first time alone as an adult. And and there's so many other aspects besides just the actual education. Um, So bravo to you for taking advantage of that. But I had no idea what I wanted to do. Okay. I just knew that I wanted to enjoy college, and that's why I did social. Uh, that's why I did anthro with the emphasis on social cultural anthropology. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, how did you find PA? It's a long story, but after college, I worked. Um, I did a lot of work in the community. Okay. Um, so I was in Sacramento, and I um, was a part of this organization that. It's very fascinating if I say this, but um, the executive director of the organization was um, the girl in the book, The Spirit Catcher See You Fall oh, Down. Oh, really? Yeah, she's Mei Ying in the book. So she founded this organization in Sacramento um, that later on I worked for. So she's oh, the founder wow. of that organization. Wow. Um, and Mei Ying is the, in the book, um, the Mei Ying is the interpreter for Anne Fadiman. Okay. So yeah, so that you know, very brave, very ambitious woman founded this organization that I later on worked for in Sacramento. And a lot of what I did, um, or a lot of what the organization did is to empower Hmong families 
um, to live, you know, like meaningful lives in the USA. Um, and so I provided a lot of social services to um, the Hmong families. Uh, eventually, I was part of uh, their health department, their health program. Okay. And that's when I started teaching around like breast cancer yeah. um, in lay language, obviously, not like the hard science behind it or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I really liked it. And um, and I also didn't really know like where I would take my nonprofit community work anymore. I was just kind of at a point where I'm like, what do I want to do with my life Right. Um, beyond just this? And like, do I want to stay here or like develop programs or becoming the executive director of an organization? I didn't know. And, and then um, I met a friend who was in the military and he worked a lot with PAs. So he's like, why don't you look into PAs? I'm like, what are PAs? What do they do? And I started doing my research around it. I was like, okay, sounds cool. Let me uh, get a job where I can actually like CPAs and what they do. So I became a scribe in the emergency department uh, for about a year and eight months before I got into PA school. Oh, wow. So oh. that's like my only clinical experience, which is not even direct patient care, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I scribe in the ED and I was able to see like the different roles of a nurse versus a doctor versus a PA. And I, I really see myself as a PA instead of like a doctor or a nurse. Um, so that's how I decided I want to be a PA. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I think scribing is one of the uh, the best things that you can do prior to PA school because it just gives you that uh, provider uh, mentality a little bit. So it's uh, I just think it's so good. So um, so I want to add on to that. I remember shadowing a PA in the emergency department, and he said that he wished he would have scribed before coming to PA school because one of the hardest part about being a PA is the charting. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so anybody who wants to be a scribe, who's looking into different opportunities or clinical background um, in order to get into PA school, I would say scribing is definitely something useful and something that I highly recommend. Yeah, I think it I think it taps out like the experience you get. Like you don't need to do three years as a scribe, but I think six months to a year is like some great experience. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's such a whirlwind and you get used to I mean, if you don't know what erythematous means, which is redness, like those are words you just learn and then you know how to spell. And yeah. it just is so much more helpful, you know, purulent um, or, or, or mucoid. And there's just so many words I can't, you know, I can't yeah. even begin to start, but um, that you just learn in that short amount of time. And it really preps you for being a clinician. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I highly recommend that. But um, so you had to go back and take a bunch of classes then, huh? Yeah, because when I was an anthro major, I didn't do any of the prerequisite. Right. Um, so when I decided to do that, that was probably how many years after college already? Probably like seven or something years after college. I had to uh, take all those classes. So when I was working as a scribe, I was also taking classes at the community colleges. Um, like there was two that I had to like travel back and forth to because one didn't have all of the classes that I oh need. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I was working as a scribe like a little bit over halftime. And then I was uh, taking classes. Um, I was taking like two classes every semester. Wow. That's incredible. And scribing doesn't typically pay very well either. No, it was like, like minimal wage. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, a part of that is like every month we have to do at least like a minimum of two overnights. And that oh, would like messed up my man. sleeping schedule. Ooh, those are rough because overnights are tough because you have to like, especially like at a job where you have to think Yeah. because your, your mental capacity is just limited when you're, when you're doing overnights, but that's yeah. incredible. Wow. Um, so how long did you, did it take from you saying, I want to do a PA to taking your classes and getting them done? I think I would say that I'm one of the few or like 
maybe a unique case or an outlier because when I decided that I wanted to do PA until um, I got into PA school, I, I don't think it was more than two years. It was real quick. Okay. Yeah, because I that's, did everything and then like it just happened. Honestly, my first round of applying, I thought it was just a trial round. How many, I was like, I didn't, I, if I don't get it, at least I knew the process now. How many schools did you apply to? Uh, there was two in state, three out of state. Five. Okay. So Lagaya, uh, who you heard a couple weeks ago, she talked about how she applied to three to start and that was kind of her trial run. And then yeah. she applied to more her second time around. How many did you apply to the second time around? No, I never applied a second you time You got around. in your first try? I got in my first try. Oh, bravo. Yeah. Bravo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, for those of you that are lucky enough to get in your first try, that's great. That's awesome. Um, for the rest of us. <laughs> um, you it know, doesn't matter. You know, you, we're all going to get there. Right. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's worth apply to schools multiple times and like use that experience to build, you know, to gain experience. And once exactly. you, once you apply to a school, call back once you find out what you did wrong. And then, um, you know, that they can maybe give you some feedback on, Hey, look, you weren't diverse enough in your experiences. You, um, you know, we need a better letter of recommendation. Like this wasn't very good. Like they can tell you those kind of things sometimes that help you, um, get into school and, and make you a, a better candidate. A lot of the time I heard that schools don't provide those feedbacks. Um, so sometimes you, they don't. Sometimes I, don't I, I only got feedback from one school. Oh, okay. And but the, that feedback was really helpful though. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't think so. Um, but yeah, most schools like they won't give you feedback till March and then you apply again in April and it's like, well, I got a month <laughs> to make a difference. Right. Like, yeah. So I think, I think, you know, the point I'm trying to get to too is like, if you apply, if you do something and you apply, it's almost better to switch gears and try something else if you're exactly. going to apply again, um, just to show that you're constantly trying something new and not just like doing the same old, same old, just more of. Because yeah. the difference between 10,000 hours of experience and 12,000 hours is negligible. But if you have 2,000 in farm, as a farm tech, 2,000 as a CNA, 2,000 as a scribe, like that makes you a much better candidate. Exactly. That's why my, when I was applying to PE school, um, I was taking ENT classes because mm. I thought that like if I didn't get in, then I would work as an ENT as my next step. Well, and like I was taking geriatric or not geriatric, sorry, uh, genetics. Oh, and that's what and, and I think we we're kind of maybe in the same boat here. Yeah, you got the call. Hey, we want you in the school, and it's like, yep, I'm not going to class <laughs> <Drop> today. <it. laughs> yeah, I totally <laughs> didn't like finish my program. Right, yeah. and it's uh, it's kind of like oh, I wish I kind of would have, but then you're like, nah. Yeah, right. Because I needed that break before like PE school started. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. And like, what's the point? You know. So it's it was nice to to take that step back. And, and I got like a little bit of refund back. Oh, that was the nice. reason too. <laughs> I didn't get anything, which is sad, but it is what it is. So, uh, is there anything else you kind of want to say about your story before we wrap up here? Um, I I don't I don't know. I mean, like if you, anybody has a question, they can you know message you guys. And yeah, send us an email uh, at coffeecortisol at gmail .com. Um, Even if you just like the story and you're like, hey, that was great. We want to hear more of that. That's great too. If you have any questions for saying, please let us know. Saying, I do want to end with. Do you have any um, tips or advice for people that you want to say? Um, you know, just kind of a quick little something. Yeah, I think that my biggest struggle in PA school, and I think a lot of us go through that, is like that imposter syndrome, right? Like you mm -hmm. feel like you're not worthy of the space or the the admission because like, who are you? Especially me, because I feel like I only got, like I only started this journey like two years ago and I got in, like like they probably picked the wrong student. And so I think the biggest barrier is like to to overcome that, to overcome the, the feeling of like, I'm not worthy. And like, Instead of that, like instead of focusing on that, like really focus on school and learning because True. if you don't, you're gonna possibly fail out, right? 
So um, just like keep your focus. And a lot of the time when you go through struggles in PA school, like you lose, a, you lose like your reason why you're here. Um, and for me, I had to like constantly find multiple reasons, you know, like I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for my clan. I'm doing this for my community. I'm doing this for myself. I'm doing this for my future for my, uh, patients. So it's constantly finding those reasons. And I think that that will keep you going um, when the times get dark. You had one more thing to say, say. I'm not saying that the struggles that we face as students of immigrant or refugee backgrounds or even students of colors face are more, but I think that they are different because as we're going through PA school, we're also taking care of our families. Well, at least for me, I'm still taking care of my parents' needs because they don't speak English um, or at least not well. And then uh, for us, I think we also sh shoulder this heavy burden to do well because uh, we want to do justice or do right uh, to our stories of how our families and communities um, arrived in the United States. So I think that in order to be mentally and psychologically healthy, we should try to connect with students of other backgrounds so that we feel better in PA school. Because when you feel better, I think you just do um, better in school. And then um, if you can't find students at your uh, school, then connect with students from other programs um, across the country or in the same state. Um, and then really try to focus on school, because when you're doing well, I think that uh, you make yourself proud, your family um, proud and your community proud. All right, excellent. Good to hear. Thanks, Sang. After recording the podcast, Sang called in using our voicemail feature, which you can actually find uh, in the description below uh, when you click on the anchor site. But she just wanted to clarify a little bit more about uh, specifically why Laos was involved in a Vietnam war with the U.S. Uh, or proxy war with the U.S. So uh, just sit tight and listen to this. Uh, it's a good brief explanation of what happened. So there might be some confusion on how Laos was involved in the Vietnam War because I myself is a refugee from Laos and not Vietnam. Um, I think I might have mentioned this earlier, but there was a trail that ran through Laos and that's how the Northern um, Arm, the Northern Vietnamese Army was able to get their supply route into Vietnam. And the Northern Army of you know Vietnam is the communistic side of the, the whole warfare here. Um, so Hmong men were recruited to wage guerrilla warfare along the supply route and also rest rescue um, Air Force pilots that were bombing the trail and were shot down. Um, and I think it was during that time that Kennedy or President Kennedy talked about the domino effect because Laos was a landlocked um, country. So if Laos was to fall into uh, communist uh, communism, then the whole Southeast Asia might become uh, a communistic region. And, you know, America didn't want that to happen. And so we engaged in the war in Vietnam. Thanks again for listening. That does it for this week's episode. Uh, we will for sure have Sang on in the future. So uh, sit tight with that and uh, hopefully uh, that can happen soon. Uh, be sure to follow, like, subscribe us, all that good stuff. You can find our links in the description below. Um, you know, make sure you tell your friends about this. Anybody who's looking for advice or, or just kind of to see a real life look into how PA school is going, um, just make sure they know so that they can find this podcast. And uh, again, thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.